Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome to the podcast today, Dr. Preeti Milani. She is Chief Health Officer at the University of Michigan. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Milani. Thank you for having me. Uh, Doctor, what is your current estimation at your medical center and more broadly in Michigan about ICU capacity and whether this winter wave or these kind of constant resurgences are uh, being managed um, as as effectively as they could be under the circumstances? Well, hospital capacity and more specifically ICU capacity is something that varies day to day. Fortunately, at this moment, things are okay at my health system at the University of Michigan and across most of my state, Michigan. Uh, But this could change very quickly. And it's a day-to-day type thing, and it really requires everyone in the community to work hard, especially during the holidays, to keep the numbers low so that the ICUs and the hospitals don't get overwhelmed. Uh, but fortunately, at this moment, the capacity is is adequate. Under the under the circumstances, again, when you think of your neighboring institutions and state, you know, as a whole. What is the status with respect to capacity and and capability? And do you think the public is getting the message after this newest wave post Thanksgiving, anticipating the holiday season, Christmas time, New Year's? Do you think it's resonating with the public, at least in Michigan, that you know precautionary steps are necessary? You know, I, I think it is, and, I, and I'm hopeful that it is, because if it's not, we're really going to be in a, in a world of hurt, all of us. And we talk about capacity. Our hospitals tend to be pretty full, especially at the University of Michigan, but also across the state. And in terms of overall numbers, it varies region to region. And some places don't have a lot of capacity. I was speaking to a colleague the other day who told me that parts of Western Michigan uh, had about 25% of their hospital capacity was taken up with patients who were ill with COVID-19. And you know, you, you, you add that on top of a situation where you already have hospitals that are bursting at the seams, it becomes difficult. All the other health issues that need to be taken care of can't be cared for properly and requires that you're canceling elective surgeries and things. And in terms of people getting the message, I, you know, again, I'm hopeful. And um, one thing in our state was a pause that was that happened. It was caused. It was called, in fact, a pause to save lives, and it was a new set of restrictions that came into effect in uh, November by our governor. And our numbers did improve after that point. So I, I do think Michiganders are thoughtful smart people, and I think they are trying to be careful, but uh, the numbers have kind of stabilized at a pretty high rate, and we're worried about what might happen with this next holiday season with Christmas and New Year's and travel in and out of the area. The cautionary tale seems to be California at the moment, and uh, specifically the potential and and now rationing of care. Um, you know, during the first wave 
did you have to ration care? Yeah, well, we did not have to ration care. And again, I think um, that that term could be interpreted a few different ways. Some of the things that got done in the spring, and again, Michigan was hit hard, like California and New York and Washington and a few other states where we were hit early and hit hard. Uh, elective surgeries were all put on hold. Anything that didn't need to happen got deferred. And that, of course, has a has a cost. It has a cost to patients. It has a cost to the health system also. And some of this delayed care can really create other health problems downstream. And again, the California issue, I sort of am following it um, in the media, and I don't fully understand what is happening there. And there's so many people in California, and there's so many areas that are really overwhelmed right now with coronavirus cases. And I, I know that the ICU capacity has been um, an ongoing concern. So, you know, California has had restrictions in place almost since the beginning. So it's it's got to be more than just restrictions. Uh, there may be something in terms of just how care is distributed there too. And also just in terms of the number of people there and where they live and how they live. What has been your experience so far with the vaccine um, at the university medical center? Is it being deployed? Have you had it? Have your colleagues had it? Yeah, so the vaccine is uh, is, is one of the happy stories of 2020. And last week, so just a, about a week ago, the first doses of vaccine were given. One of my colleagues was was one of the first couple people, in fact, and it was a really great moment. Um, we have done a lot of planning to get all the logistics in place. I am waiting for my turn. I'm signed up. And it's a matter of when enough vaccine becomes available. And again, that's a day-by-day, week-by-week process. Uh, our health system has uh, special freezers in place. So the Pfizer vaccine will probably be um, different differentially sent here so that we can store it and uh, use it. And so far it's, it's been Pfizer and as Moderna supply becomes available, my understanding is some of that is going to be uh, prioritized for places that don't have that capacity for the uh, very low temperature deep freezers for storage. But it's exciting. I, I, um, I anticipate in the coming weeks that I'll be vaccinated. And I think that's going to be a, a pretty special moment for me. When you think of the vaccine, you know, the, the, there is hope that COVID can be, if not eliminated or eradicated, much more controlled next year. Um, and 2021 can be a year of real recovery. However, there is the possibility that public health measures are not adhered to with discipline in the same way they haven't been in many states. And there's kind of been a constant re-importation of caseloads and spikes of clusters. I, I know you speak with authority on this, but is it possible that if you continue not to have a disciplined constituency, citizenry, that the vaccine will not make the inroads that it could otherwise. That That's correct. And it's 
essential that we have control of community spread for the vaccine to do its part to really get everything completely under control. A vaccine in and of itself won't turn this around and certainly won't turn it around quickly if you can't have control of cases overall. So the vaccine is going to be a slow ramp up, but but we're very hopeful. And so far, the numbers in terms of effectiveness are really, really encouraging. And, uh, and it ultimately will help us get back to something that feels closer to normal, hopefully sooner than later. But if we can all do our part following the the other public health guidance, which especially right now means limiting your gatherings, keeping your group small, wearing a mask, being very careful following other guidance if you've had an exposure or you have symptoms. And by doing all of that, we're going to get back to something that feels like normal much quicker. And you just have to look at other countries that have done this without a vaccine. And Australia comes to mind. Other nations in Asia come to mind. I um, recently gave a a keynote lecture at the Australian Infectious Disease Society. And on that particular day, there were nine cases in the entire country. And in speaking to my colleagues, they all, one after another said, yeah, my kids are back in school. Yeah, this is, it feels pretty normal right now. And we can also get there, but it really requires all of us to share that responsibility. When you think of the long-term ramifications rather than the short-term objective of eradication of COVID-19, you also have to consider the potential for mutation, the potential for complications um, of the genetic uh, character of this virus, uh, which could make us more vulnerable. Uh, on that on that score, and on the question of the American health system, and you know this unique opportunity to confront both the inequities and inefficiencies of the health system. Uh, have those, have any strides been made? And what do you hope that this new administration might be able to accomplish that confronts not the virus so much as concerns with the overall state of the American healthcare system? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that question because COVID has really laid bare all the inequities uh, that you mentioned. And in our country, income really dictates health. And there's really good evidence that shows this wonderful work from Raj Shetty, who's an economist, that shows very clearly, depending on how much money you have, you live longer. And COVID highlights all the other issues. We have uh, a system where we get our health insurance through employers, and then you all of a sudden have a situation where so many people find themselves without work and without health insurance. And we also have a system where there's still a large portion of people who lack health insurance, or if they have insurance, they lack access to health care. So I'm hopeful that we can have some important discussions on our health system and to try to bridge those gaps, not to move to a complete um, uh, government system like they have in, in some parts of the world or necessarily having public option for everyone, but to make sure that 
people aren't left behind. And I, I'm thinking particularly of individuals who are near retirement. So they might be in their 60s, not eligible for Medicare, but maybe are without a job and have difficulty getting health insurance. What can we do to help bridge those gaps? Those are the kind of conversations I really hope we have. And regarding inefficiencies, one thing that is here to stay is telehealth. And we used to talk about this as something like off into the future. And again, there's nothing like a crisis to help move things forward quickly. And that has been the case with telehealth. And it's required an adjustment for all of us, and myself included, as someone who has to be on the other side of uh, of the camera. But I've learned to adapt, and I've I've found that this is actually a really good option for some patients. And they don't have to travel. They can check in uh, easily from home and it is an efficient system if it's if it's deployed properly so i i think there are going to be some aspects that stay with us and then there are going to be new problems to investigate and one example is children who may have not necessarily suffered covid but have suffered all the the uh, fallout from covid everything from being home and not being in school, not having social interactions like they normally would. And what is that going to do to a generation of kids? And what type of things can our health system do to help uh, address those needs? Let's flesh out this question of income correlation with health outcomes. It seems so intuitive and obvious at this point. And as not just capitalism has accelerated, but what I've called on this program cannibal capitalism, um, really eating out at you know, the, the majority strata of society. Um, you, you know, tragically are ensnared in this debate about the current state of healthcare, private insurance system versus Medicare for all. Before Medicare for all, it was Hillary Care, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, or single payer public option. Uh, the target it has always been just a foundation of equity so that we have a capitalistic system and at the same time we have, if you want to call it a safety net, I would prefer to use a foundation of health security. If you were to say, practically speaking, knowing the costs and the monetization of healthcare in virtually every system, even nonprofits, what is realistically the foundation of equity, the foundation of health security, putting away all of the political palaver and just honing in on, you know, what ought to be available to every citizen? Yeah, this is this is the million dollar or billion dollar question. And again, that work I mentioned around uh, income and, and longevity, this was work that was published four years ago. And it just, again, showed higher income was associated with greater longevity. But the differences varied uh, by area. You could have low income and live in certain areas and still do quite well. And I think honing in on those communities and thinking about what works well, what is that safety net? Uh, the other piece that comes to mind, in reflecting on your comments, are that having insurance alone isn't enough. And I think about this in terms of low wage workers. And University of Michigan is 
one of the it is the largest employer in the state of Michigan. And when we look at how people use health insurance, which is the same excellent health insurance product that I have, our low wage workforce has that same plan. But what we see is more emergency care for things that are that could be handled in a primary care setting, less preventive care, less cancer screening. And this is something that's been seen across the country in other uh, employer-based insurance plans. And so one of the thoughts I have too is what can employers do to help improve health equity? And that's before COVID came along and, and took up a lot of my attention. This is one of the spaces I was interested in. And what are the levers that employers can do, can, can use, you know, is it pay time off? Is it having an urgent care on site? Is it uh, coming up with other ways to really truly improve health? Not just, uh, not just handing people a good insurance product, but helping people navigate use. And I'm hoping in 2021 to get back to some of that discussion because it's, it is really uh, an essential thing. And employers may be, part of the solution. And I think, frankly, there is a real interest in employers to think about healthcare costs because employees may be with them for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years or more. And any suggestion in the legislative or political arena in which this would have to manifest, uh, specifically in Michigan with recommendations to Governor Whitmer or federally with recommendations to incoming Biden administration officials? Yeah, so a couple thoughts. And, and again, I think if I spent a little more time thinking about this, I'd come up with other things. Uh, one thing that gets missed that's a really important aspect of health is oral health, dental care. And in, in the state of Michigan, Medicaid expansion has helped fill some of those gaps for children, but adults don't have the same kind of access. And so I think coming up with ways to improve oral health it should be a priority area because oral health is health. There's a lot of important connections between the, the condition of your teeth and the health of your teeth and gums and your overall health. Uh, the other piece I mentioned earlier, which is that pre-retirement age, that group of people who are in their 50s or early 60s who don't qualify for Medicare yet, but may want to retire or may lose their job. What do they do for health insurance? And some of them have health conditions just because of their age. Um, you can anticipate that many of them have significant, significant health conditions. So can you come up with a public option for those individuals? And that is actually something that, that um, holds a lot of appeal to consumers and also makes sense uh, in terms of, of cost. So I, I hope that that will get explored a little deeper by whoever comes into these spaces. If you were to advise strategically on establishing a criteria for more adequate insurance, um, making sure that insurance companies can't get away with making folks fork over loads of, of dollars and premiums without getting essential care, that really does seem to be the pivotal question because in many scenarios prior to COVID and certainly in the context of emergency care, not just surprise billing, but um, the 
unevenness of the insurance market. I mean, that, that is really what you highlighted. The fact that um, you can have insurance and it can be like not having insurance at all. Um, and the discrepancies within insurance plans is not something that the Affordable Care Act dealt with. In fact, uh, if anything, it got more crazy. <laughs> it got yeah. more difficult. You know, of course, there's the the, the, the requirement of care for uh, children under 26, but in pre-existing conditions was a notable accomplishment. Having said that, correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. Milani, but there is not really a set of best practices or a legally mandated criteria to ensure that Patients and owners of insurance are not getting robbed and, and not discovering that they aren't covered when they have an ailment, when they, when they, you know, seek out care for the first time or for, you know, the second, third, whatever time. That, that's correct. And I think what you're alluding to are that uh, all insurance products are not created equal. And there are a list of essential health benefits under the Affordable Care Act. And, and again, I'm, that, that policy piece is complicated, uh, but really looking at that and making sure that all policies do meet certain criteria. And again, people don't necessarily say, I want to get a bad policy. They sign up for one that might fit their budget. And so I think coming up with ways to make a good policy affordable. And the other piece that I am thinking about as we are talking is the uh, in mental health and substance use disorder services. Um, and this is something that is so prevalent, and it could be people who are otherwise healthy. They don't necessarily have a lot of pre-existing conditions, but uh, certainly the opioid crisis in um, across our country, but also what's happened during the pandemic in terms of uh, people's emotional well-being and also alcohol use and other other substances that has gone up uh, in unhealthy use, but making sure that uh, that these these uh, products do provide good care and that people can use them in their local area, you know, that that physicians and other providers are willing to accept them. And again, I think these are complicated issues. And I think it has really been different states handling this a little bit differently. And of course, we still have states that have not expanded um, Medicaid. And uh, in talking to colleagues of mine who practice in those states, they often point out how difficult it is for, for um, their most vulnerable patients. And particularly in my world of infectious disease, individuals who have uh, HIV, when they don't have good health insurance, it's very difficult to get all the, the care that we know can really prolong people's life and help them be productive in every way. Dr. Preeti Malani, Chief Health Officer at the University of Michigan, Thank you so much for your insight today. Thanks so much.